are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. Job 16 and 17. Job 16 and 17. One of the things that I find is interesting about uh, Christianity is that there is a good amount of what I'll just call simultaneousness in our Christian experience. In, In other words, two things can kind of be true at the same time. I don't know if you felt this way about politics or life. Uh, There are some things that are just true at the same time. They exist side by side in a kind of co-share kind of way in our brain. And sometimes when we overthink about one or underthink about another, uh, things get wacky. We kind of have to think about things being true at the same time. There's a lot of that that's true in the Christian life. In other words, there are some things in our lives that are not either or. I think sometimes we try to solve problems and sometimes, again, the political sphere is probably the most interesting space to kind of plug in your either or. It's either this or it's that. A lot of exclusivity, like you got to pick a side, right? Two chasms, you can't exist in the middle, you got to pick a side. Well, some things can be true at the same time. In other words, some truths are not really either or. Sometimes there's just a both and. And it's hard to make sure you keep the tension between the two. For example, in the Christian life, we talk about this here often, we are simultaneously at the same time sinner and saint. And that's a tricky one for us to understand. Paul calls the Corinthian church one of the worst churches uh, in at least the Bible. Uh, This is not a church that you would attend. This is not a church that you would go to. There was public sin, nasty stuff, division, not great. And Paul opens his letter to them and says, to the saints in Corinth. And you try to figure that out. It's tough, isn't it? To the Corinth, they're like, well, functionally, we're sinners. We know we sin. We have a bunch of problems, Paul. We're a mess. We're a hot mess. But Paul comes to them and says, well, because of the truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you, you are saint. You are functionally a sinner, but you're positionally a saint. At the same time, both are true. How do we reconcile? It's not either or. It's not 50%. Right? It's both and. Some of us are trying to work through the dynamics of uh, God's call of his law upon our life or God's grace. Right? Which one is it? Is it law or is it grace? It's either law or it's either grace. Which side are you going to choose? And the reality is both exist simultaneously, side by side. God does have a law, but God also does have infinite amounts of grace. There is an expectation. There is an oughtness to life. God hasn't somehow abandoned holiness and just said, like, you know, I'll just take it easy on you. 
No, there is simultaneously law and holiness and perfection. There is that standard. But somehow there's this provision for those who haven't met that standard. There is this option for forgiveness and mercy and love. They exist simultaneously. Now, there's a proper order. There's a proper distinction. They work together. But still, it's not either or. It's both and. In chapter 16 and 17 of Job, Job helps us understand another one of these simultaneousnesses of the Christian life. That running side by side together in our lives is a full operation of both suffering and hope. Suffering and hope. These are not either or conditions. These are simultaneously true conditions. In talking about the either or or the both and, I know sometimes in the Christian life we like to talk about this idea of trying to find a unique balance. Trying to find a balance between these true realities. A stark 50%. Some of us probably have even been encouraged to do this, maybe even between the ideas of law and gospel, right? You've got to strike at a good 50% somewhere along the way. You can't go all law and you can't go all gospel. You've got to strike it right at the 50s. And my friend, good luck. That's a challenging burden to bear. Or maybe sinner saint. You can't act always sinner all the time. Sometimes you've got to act saint, right? You've got to go 50s. Sometimes in our Christian experience, it's even presented as suffering and hope. But you've got to do 50% somehow. You've got to try to strike that balance. Yeah, there's a little bit of suffering, but you've got to manage that with a little bit of good, solid Christian hope. But you can't go full hope that you lose sight of some of the real sufferings of life. Somehow we turn religion or turn anything into a game of religion, don't we? The idea of balance sometimes puts the control right back into your hands. That you're the one who has to figure it out. You're the one that has to draw the lines. A lot of times when we talk about Christian balance in all of these ways, what we end up doing is taking grace holistically out of the picture. And what we find is that God sometimes isn't interested in balance. Sometimes he's just interested in the truth. God's wisdom and his grace helps us to understand the realities of the simultaneousnesses of life. The one thing I want us to understand right out as we get started in chapter 16 is Job makes it very clear. And of course, this is a response to Eliphaz and his graceless wisdom. Remember from two weeks ago, uh, Eliphaz presented a fully graceless construct of suffering mitigation. Here's how you figure out all of your suffering. Job, you just plug in all of these things that you need to do. Stop thinking the way you're, you're starting to think. Plug in the game of religion, go full law operation, and you too will be able to figure out a way out of your suffering. Job's immediate answer in chapter 16 is that that's a bunch of hooey. Look with me as, as he says in uh, chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. Job answered Eliphaz and said, I have heard many such things, and haven't we all? Miserable comforters you are uh, you you all miserable comforters are you all shall windy words have an end or what provokes you that you answer i also could speak as you do if you were in my place 
I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth, and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. This is the second time Job accuses his friends of being miserable comforters, unable to add any comfort to his pain. I do find it funny that in verse 3 he says, Shall windy words have an end? This is the exact uh, accusation that Eliphaz gave to Job. You have windy words. And Job's like, no, you have windy words. You, you have windy words. You're a windy wordser. I find it funny. I have little kids. This happens all the time. Job would have the final straw here in this word because we know, as Job makes it very clear, human wisdom offers no comfort. I don't know if you figured this out yet. Sometimes I struggle with it. In fact, even this week I've struggled with this, thinking that there really is something to the human expression or to the human fight or to the game of religion that would offer a little bit of comfort if I just could play my cards right. If I could just figure out the kind of balance to strike, I can offer myself at least a little bit of comfort. Maybe I can say, maybe with a little bit of clarity, I think there is a little bit of comfort in some time. But I think it's all short-lived. Human wisdom has a very short shelf life. What we found in Eliphaz's lack of wisdom is that gracelessness offers you no hope. There is no solution from your suffering that is not a part of divine grace. There is no escape from the dark things that you and I face that offer us real, lasting, soul-raising hope apart from divine love. It's impossible to find relief through you. Maybe we can say, God has to do it for you. Job knows that this is a very tricky thing to try to secure. There's a couple observations I want to point out in Job's words and his response back to Eliphaz uh, here tonight. There's really two main things I want us to see, but it's part of the simultaneousness of the Christian life that both suffering and hope run side by side. You have to take double shots of both. And here's what we're talking about. Number one, suffering does not equal hopelessness. Garrett, do you have any of those batteries charged? I'm already tired of yelling. My mic went out. We took a risk. We lost. That's all right. Just keep me on rotation. Just keep feeding me. This is good entertainment. A couple of truths here that Job shares with us right out of the gate. And I think these are extremely helpful. In other words, again, sometimes I think a lot of our suffering is compounded by us trying to strike the right balance in life. And Job offers us some profound clarity here that gives rest for our soul. And the first thing he helps us to see is that suffering does not equal hopelessness. Just because you suffer, it doesn't mean you're without hope. 
probably means you're human. But it doesn't mean you're without hope. The first thing that Job wants us to see that's hopeful, that sheds light, and we'll talk about how this sheds light because it might not seem so at first, but the first thing Job helps us to see that he rests his own soul in is that God is sovereign over your suffering. God has his hands deep within your suffering. Or as we sang tonight, all of our ways are known to him. Job says this in chapter 16, verse 6. If I speak, my pain is not assuaged. And if I forbear, if I just simply try to outlast it, how much of it leaves me? Job announces right out of the gate, I can't control my suffering. I can't control my suffering. Sometimes we think we can manage it. Sometimes we can think we can outwork it. But how far along life's road do we get before we find a new kind of suffering that we were not planning for? How many times do we get stuck in a place of life where the circumstances are absolutely out of our control? This is where Job finds himself. And I think, I think many of us, even in uh, our own circumstances, try to almost delude ourselves with some aspect of control. That we've got it figured out. Something went our way. I'm in control. I think you and I both know it only points to deeper realities of things we don't have control over. So what is his solution? Verse 7. Surely now God has worn me out. It's him. He has made desolate all my company. And he has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me. And my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Men have gaped at me with their mouth and they have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surrounded me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin and have laid my strength in the dust. My face is red with weeping and my eyelids is on uh, and on my eyelids is deep darkness although there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. Traveling with a bunch of other pastors inevitably the conversation of what are you preaching on this week came up. I pulled up my Bible app and I simply read He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. (laughs) They're like, whoa, brother. All right, that's probably pretty violent, but that's what I'm preaching on. They're like, I'm in Philippians. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Like, our people are going through it. It's a little odd, but Job admits in verse 6, I can't control my suffering. In verse 2, it may even feel like slightly almost accusatory, but he definitely understands the reality that God is sovereign over his suffering here. 
He basically chalks it up to, it's all God. And then in verses 15 and 17, he responds with his own kind of mourning. Really, Job says, I'm at the end of my rope. God has done this. I can't figure it out. It seems like he's against me. I have acted purely. It has nothing to do with rightness or wrongness. God has orchestrated life's events to where they are actually helping me see my own limits, my own limitations, my own insovereignty, and my need for help. How is it that sovereignty over suffering can be comforting? How do we find any kind of comfort from God being sovereign over our suffering? Why can't we be in control of our suffering? I think a lot of times, again, we dupe ourselves into thinking that we can offer ourselves solutions to our own problems. And many of us fail to consider the freedom that's actually found in the fact that God is sovereign over your life. Maybe if I could flip it the other way, there's a blessing to the fact that God hasn't asked you to be in control of your life. That might hurt at first, I get it. It might hurt at first because we all desperately want control. But don't you recognize that there are things that you can't lift? You can't solve the world's problems. And that's, that's what we need, right? The problem's not just me, although it is me. Some of my problems are the people around me. You just look at how I drive. It's all their fault. I can solve my problems just fine. But I can't control you. I can't control life's circumstances. And there's a blissful freedom in the fact that God hasn't asked you to do that. He hasn't asked you to solve the world's problems, to lift the burden of the world, to put the entire weight of the world on your shoulders. He's like, I got that. But that also means that puts a touch point on our own life that we don't have control over our lives. And that hurts. I get it. I feel that pain all the time. Sometimes, though, maybe, though, if I can kind of challenge you with this, sometimes we simply just treat suffering as accidental or circumstantial, right? Just, ah, I had to slip up. Nah, it's my fault. I got it. That's, that's me. That's on me. I'm sorry. I should have figured that out. should have done that better. Sometimes we think it's like a little bit circumstantial, or maybe we see it as purely accidental. Like, why, why is this happening to me? What in the world? What did I do wrong? Where, where did I misstep? How did this go? How did this go so wrong? And sometimes we never tend to think that God's hands are deeply involved in our suffering. That God may be behind the whole thing. I think sometimes we literally forget that. That God is sovereign over everything. Have we forgot what? Peter says in Acts, uh, excuse me, what Paul says in uh, Acts 17 to the men in Ephesus, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. It's like you and me, right? We, we want to be very religious, control all of life's events, strings and pulleys, right? We get it. But then he goes on, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, including suffering. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and their boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not that far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. 
It's interesting how even scripture says that he even has things like the hairs of our head numbered, which isn't too hard for, for me. But you know what this means? It just means that God has thought about me a lot over the years. Every one of the hairs that's fallen out, he's like, it's another 100. I got you. Right. He'll think about you, you guys down the road a little bit. Right? For me, he's thought about me a lot. But there's a sense to which like, you can't even drive in your car and go to the ends of the earth. I can't even hop on a plane to Arkansas without God having allotted my boundaries and my dwelling places. He knows where you go. Psalm 139. Even if you were to go into the uttermost parts of the sea, you'd find him there. He's sovereign. He knows where you are. He knows what you do. He's in control of everything. And don't, don't forget the fact that for the believer, for those called according to his purpose, that God is actually orchestrating and causing all things in a sovereign way to work out together for the ultimate good of those people that he loves. God's sovereignty for those who are his own works in their favor. God's sovereignty elects suffering to actually work out his own purposes in your life which are for your good, which are for your lasting, which are for your everlasting life. God is causing and orchestrating even suffering in a way that you can't understand, but we do know the end. It's with him and it's forever. So maybe there's a blessedness to being at the end of your rope. Maybe there's a blessedness to the magic sauce of, I don't have it all figured out. God, you're going to have to do this whole thing frees you from the burden to control and manipulate your own life, allowing him to work. It's just hard when we don't get our way, isn't it? God is sovereign over your salvation, but also God is found in your suffering. God is found in your suffering. Job says this in verse 18, O earth, cover not my blood, and let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me, my eye pours out tears to God that would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. For when a few years have come, I shall go the way from which I shall not return. Verse 18 is a really interesting phrase, O earth, cover not my blood. It actually harkens back to uh, the Lord when the Lord confronted Cain after Cain killed Abel back in Genesis 4. The Lord said, What have you done, Cain? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. It's almost like the earth's, Mother Earth sees what you've done and his own blood speaks something against you. And Job is actually taking that idea and using it for his own. Oh, oh God, hear the voice of the ground that cries out for me. Hear his voice and let my cry find no resting place until it hits your ears, is what the, what the idea is there. But I, I love that I, uh, this phrase in verse 19, even now, even now, right now, in the middle of my suffering, behold, my witness is in heaven. Think more like lawyer. Think my, uh, my defender is in heaven. The one who testifies for me is on high. Of course, he's pointing to Jesus, the great high priest. Of course, he has no idea how it would all work out. But knowing that God, in the end, would speak for Job, would actually do the work of defending Job 
in a priestly way that would set Job right. What an amazing opportunity that Job, in the middle of his suffering, in the middle of an understanding of God and his sovereignty, he says very clearly, God is found right here, even now, in the middle of my suffering. My friend, just because you are going through suffering doesn't mean that Jesus has abandoned his throne for you. Just because you're going through a hard time doesn't mean that Jesus isn't even now praying and interceding for you. In fact, my friend, maybe the exact opposite. We know that Jesus, our great high priest, went exactly through the same things that we went through, yet without sin. So he actually knows how to better make witness for you to God the Father for you. He actually went through death, taking on your death, so he knows exactly what it would mean to present his own righteousness before the Father and say, forgive them. He knows what it means to take life back into his own hands. And so when the Father asks us all to lay our lives down on the table for him and his own sovereignty, Jesus knows how to speak life into the middle of deadness. Jesus, your substitute and your great high priest, hasn't abandoned his throne even in the middle of your suffering. This helps us to see that suffering and hope run side by side. Maybe, if I could say it this way, it's the only way to actually see hope is to embrace the reality of your suffering. Suffering does not equal hopelessness, but also hopefulness doesn't always feel like surety. Hopefulness doesn't feel like surety. Job, having just struck a chord in our hearts with the deep realities of what we truly need. We don't, we don't just need uh, mitigation from our suffering. We don't need our problems to go away. We need somebody to speak on our defense. He's now going to launch into really a human expression of how he feels. Though he knows it's true that God will take up his case and defend him, it doesn't always feel secure, does it? It doesn't always feel sure. It doesn't always feel like we're going to make it. In other words, hope is a struggle. Hope is tough. There's three things I actually want to here point out. I'll give you the, the clues here to kind of look for before we read. There are three things that, at least from this passage as Job expresses it, that keep us from a sense of surety. There are three things that Job clearly puts in here that help us feel the tension or the, the angst of our own souls as we try to wrestle our minds and hearts around this idea of hope. The one thing he helps us to see is that human frailty still exists. Hostile en enemies still exist. And everything that we're banking all of our hopes on, everything that we're betting all of our blue chips on, are fixed firmly in hopeful promises. Hopeful promises. In other words, we've been given a promise, but we don't have the thing that we've been promised yet. This is what Job says. And we'll go ahead and just read verse 1 through 16, the whole, the whole chapter, and you'll see sprinkled throughout all of these elements, human frailty, hostile enemies, and hopeful promises. You'll see them spread out here as Job talks. This is his angst right out of the gate in verse 1. My spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. Surely there are mockers about me, and my eye dwells on their provocation. 
lay down a pledge for me with you. Who is there who will put up security for me? Since you have closed their heart to understanding, therefore you will not let them triumph. He who informs against his friends to get a share of their property, the eyes of his children will fail. He has made me a byword of the peoples, and I am one before whom men spit. My eye has grown dim from vexation, and all my members are like a shadow. The upright are appalled at this, and the innocent stirs himself up against the godless. Yet the righteous holds to his way. And he who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. But you, come on again, all of you, and I shall not find a wise man among you. My days are past. My plans are broken off, the desires of my heart. They make night into day. The light, they say, is near to the darkness. If I hope for the grave as my house, if I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother or my sister, Where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of the grave? Shall we descend together into the dust? Again, you see right out of the gate, his admission of his own human frailty. This this could almost like read on uh, on the front of his tombstone, spirit broken, days extinct, graveyard ready. Right? He's ready to just go. Verse 7, my eye has grown dim from vexation. All my members are like a shadow. I'm just worn out. He has hostile enemies. Verse 2, there are mockers about me. My eye dwells on their provocation. Verse 6, he made me a byword of the peoples. Some of you are going through suffering. It's like this. We would say, like, you've gone full Job. (laughs) That's basically what that means. People have made me a joke. People have put me into, into their vocabulary as somebody who's just full of disgrace and, disgrace and derision. I'm one before whom people spit. I'm a, I'm a walking, um, whatever that word is for shameful things, whatever that word is. Can't think of it. But also hopeful promises. He says in verse 3, and I think, I believe in this case, he's talking to the Lord Lay down a pledge for me with you. Who is there who will put up security for me? Again, at this point, though he has things by faith that he's looking at, again, he surely believes that God will take up his cause in heaven and stand before him and make witness, yet he still feels like the rest of his Christian existence is fairly insecure. Who is it that's going to take up a promise and a pledge for me? Who's going to actually make a promise that stands for me? Who's going to do that? Verse 9, he understands that the righteous holds to his way, and he who has a clean hands, who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. He's banking on the fact that God actually looks upon the righteous. But verse 15 is really telling. This is how he ends his whole little answer to Eliphaz. Where then is my hope? He doesn't say this at the beginning and then get around to Jesus. He announces Jesus, and then he still has lingering human questions. Where then is my hope? My friend, if you're struggling today, if you're suffering today, please know that hope is a struggle. Hope is a struggle. Faith is a fight. 
And the reality, I, I shared this in the little devotional in the email, the reality of our struggle is, is not our doubt. It's not the presence of struggle. It's not the presence of angst. or It's not even losing the fight. The answer to our promise, uh, to, to, to our, our problems, is the strength of the promise. And this is what Job knows. This is what Job is confessing. I don't always believe well. I don't have my hold on you, God. But God, if you have your hold on me, I'll be all right. And you know, he knows that to be true. Hebrews 11, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's being having your feet rock solid in things hoped for in the middle of the air. It's the expectation or the conviction of things not seen. It's being fully assured of things you have no idea about. Faith is a struggle. She says, so what's my solution? How do we know? Where do I rest? The writer of Hebrews gets down to Hebrews 12. You've got to read a whole chapter of like people who struggled along, who actually didn't do it right, who, like Job, started out with a bunch of Jesus and then went their own way, right? People who just suffered through life. And the writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of heroes and capes, is that what he says? Great people who did awesome things for Jesus. No, he says, since we are surrounded by a bunch of people who saw something else, a bunch of witnesses, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us by looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, the originator and the end of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured suffering endured the cross, despising the shame, and is right now, just like Job has already said, is right now seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. See, the reality is, hopefulness doesn't always feel like surety, but that doesn't mean that in your insecurity about life that you don't have any hope. Jesus still occupies the throne. Even when you fail to believe, even when you struggle to believe, even when hope is a real struggle and you're asking questions like, Job, where then is my hope? Jesus still sits on the throne. And my friend, that is what you're banking it all on. The Christian life is not suffering or faith, right? It's not choose this life of suffering or a life of perfect faith, but suffering and faith. They both go together in this life. As God sovereignly brings pain into our lives to cast us on the promises of his faithfulness, to help us see not in our own ability, but to rest firmly on Jesus, the one who suffered already in our place. Jesus' cross and resurrection, they are the things that assure you of life in the middle of your death forgiveness in the middle of your sin and hope in the middle of your suffering. My friend, this reality of Job, his hopefulness doesn't always feel like security, but hopelessness also, uh, um, but, but suffering does not equal hopelessness. These two realities help us to see that there is a mixed bag of feelings in the Christian life, of truths in the Christian life. But, even though you suffer now, as Job says, 
that doesn't change the fact that before the throne of God, it is finished. It doesn't change the fact that your eternal destiny rests not on you, but in an already finished and completed work done for you in Jesus. So whatever you're suffering with, keep struggling. Keep wrestling. Keep fighting. Know that it's not about even whether or not you win or not. It's not about your strength. It's not about your ability to figure it out or answer all of God's questions or to sovereignly get control over your life or mitigate your suffering. It's never been about that. It's always been about Jesus on his throne for you. And my friend, he's already there and he's not going away. So look to him. So continue to trust him. Walk by faith, struggle to him. Let's pray. Salvation, come on to me.